0: J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality It's Tuesday, January ninth, twenty twenty-four, the one thousand eighty-fourth day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. So yesterday we talked about mainstream info ops that may or may not be run by our side and our allies, people who communicate some of our messaging, but never quite get there the whole way. And how we're told that these people are actually lying to their audiences of millions in order to wake the normies up. And because of that, because it is an info op on our side designed to wake people up and bring them in our direction, it is not only okay that they lie to their audience of millions, it is necessary and, in fact, a good thing for them to do it. And for us, rather than commenting on their blatant, obvious dishonesty. We are supposed to praise them and clap for all the normies. They're waking up even as we become those same normies ourselves, all of us combining with those normies to believe all the lies that these media figures are disseminating. And I argued that regardless of the status of the op, whether it is an op by the bad guys to keep everyone safely penned in within the confines of the central narrative and not bursting through Overton's window, which we now might as well call Carlson's window because Tucker is who now sets those boundaries, or whether it is an op by the good guys to slowly drip out the truth so that the normies can figure it out on an appropriate timeline, eventually leading them to search for truth on their own, it is nonetheless a moral imperative, our duty, our responsibility to demand truth in all cases. The priority is not to decide whether Tucker Carlson is a good guy or a bad guy. And if we decide, yeah, he's probably a good guy, we defend his dishonesty. The point is to simply demand truth in all cases. So whether or not Tucker Carlson turns out to be a good guy or a bad guy, we have still done the right thing. Even Tucker Carlson's defenders understand that he is disseminating false stories. That part is not even up for debate. It's just whether or not we should be defending him doing so. People claim it's being done for a good reason, but there's no way to know that that's true. And we shouldn't be defiling or ignoring our principles in order to uphold them. That's like the argument the communists make. They needed to actually wreck democracy in order to save it. If they let the people decide for themselves, well, that'll be the end of democracy. You see, it actually makes no sense whatsoever. So we demand truth. We point out when that demand is not being met by someone who is a public figure with a vast audience. And if it turns out that they were asked to do that as part of some clandestine information operation on behalf of the American people, a patriotic act done in good faith, well, then we say, hey, I'm sorry I ever doubted you. Thank you for doing what you did. I also argued that it is morally wrong to deceive people and prevent them from knowing information that they could use to make better decisions in their lives. Now, you could argue that people have been presented with all of this information. It's out there. It is their responsibility to go get it. And I agree with that. But the point is they are being deterred from doing that by the people on the television who they believe they can trust, like Tucker Carlson. What would have happened if Tucker started telling the truth about a range of subjects years ago instead of just beginning to approach it like with election fraud right now. Keeping people trapped in an informational past is bad for them. Doing it intentionally while pretending you're doing something good may well be evil, and it may have external costs as well. If you take a single case, an individual case, If one person is prevented from knowing something, they might make some bad decisions in their lives that lead to negative consequences in their lives. And yesterday I used the example of the vaccines. A lot of the people who we've been told over the last few years are actually just lying to their audiences to slowly wake up the normies. Well, they all push the vaccines. And people went out and got those COVID vaccines, and many of them have had negative health consequences. I'm sure some of them have probably died. Should they have been listening to the people on TV and on X, formerly Twitter, and on podcasts to make those decisions? Should they have listened to Ben Shapiro when he said, my wife's a doctor? Well, no, of course they shouldn't have. But the situation was made worse by the fact that they were being lied to. They were being kept in an informational past by gatekeepers in the mainstream. Those decisions have dire consequences. I did an episode in June of last year, June 23rd. I remember because I have sent this episode out as a recommendation to people probably more than any other episode because they get an understanding of my perspective and my approach without it being heavy on the politics. So June 23rd of 2023 on informational time travel. And I talk about these informational timelines and being trapped in an informational past. And last night we had an amazing example of exactly this factor in a visual presentation on Truth Social brought to us by the legendary OG Anon Julian's Rum. He posted Google Trends graphic that shows how ahead of the curve Trump and Q were on Epstein Island. Trump nine years ago, quote, Bill Clinton has big problems coming with Epstein Island. Trump said that to Sean Hannity at CPAC in February of 2015. So nearly nine years ago, Q six years ago, he links to a post that has the quote, what is a cult? And then says Epstein Island. The post goes on, what is a temple? What occurs in a temple? Worship? Why is the temple on top of a mountain? How many levels might exist below? And so that was a Q post from November 2017, well over six years ago now. And those stories are overlaid onto his graphic of the Google trend line. Searches for Epstein and the line is just flat Zero interest whatsoever until late 2019, which was around the time that Epstein was imprisoned and then, quote unquote, committed suicide in prison. So obviously, as you might imagine, the searches for Epstein would peak throughout that period. And then the trend line basically goes back to almost zero until The last couple of weeks when it has now shot through the roof because of the constant mainstream media exposure to this story, the releases of these documents, most of them were already released, but now there is more interest in the Epstein story than ever. But the point Julian's rum is making is that Trump was talking about this in February of 2015 Q was talking about it in November 2017, and it has only received widespread public attention at the point where he was imprisoned and, quote unquote, committed suicide. And now with all of these releases into the mainstream media. Now, of course, the Epstein story was around well before Donald Trump mentioned it at CPAC in 2015. But we're talking about moments where attention is directed toward a particular issue by an individual and it is up to society whether or not they respond to that individual and whether their attention shifts to the story. Widespread public attention did not shift to this story until there were the national mainstream stories about his imprisonment, his suicide, and these current releases. But how would things be different if we had been closer To real time, if we had been interacting on an informational timeline much closer to the present, how would things be different if this time hadn't elapsed between when we could have known much more of the truth about these situations and where we are in the present day? Now, again, I wasn't anywhere close to real time on an informational timeline back in February of 2015. Certainly not about Donald Trump or about Epstein Island, but this is not about judging where someone is on an informational timeline and it's not a contest to see who can get closest to real time. It is just a way of framing these things and thinking about them that should indicate the importance Of being more discerning in where we get our information and picking up the signal from truth tellers rather than simply going along with what the mainstream media is disseminating and our peers, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers Are discussing. We have a tendency to fall in to that central narrative because everybody else is in there as well. And we want to feel connected to other people. We want to feel like we are part of the current public conversation. And the people propagandizing us, well, they know that and they take advantage of that constantly. We are essentially groomed into that behavior. We are educated and indoctrinated into it. And once they have us where they need us in their ability to shift our attention at any moment, then they can just begin coming up with increasingly dramatic and salacious stories that they know will get our attention. And this works. This is so effective because everyone maintains the focus on these mass cultural influencers like a Tucker Carlson. People are, as I have said many times, addicted to the central narrative. And I mean that in the same way they might be addicted to Game of Thrones. They watch Game of Thrones every week. And by the way, I was addicted to Game of Thrones. So all good if you are. But you watch the show every week. You want to see next week's show. You're not going to let go of the story midway. You want to see how it progresses. You want to see how it ends. You want to see what happens to your favorite characters. People cannot let go of the central narrative. So they focus their time consuming content that tells that same central narrative story. I am certain that we all know people who followed the Claudine Gay must resign as president of Harvard story for two or three weeks. They were told they were on the front lines of the cultural battleground in trying to get Claudine Gay to resign as president of Harvard. And they believed it because all of their favorite TV characters were saying that to them. All of the TV characters care a lot about that story. That means that story must be really important. That means you need to care a lot about that story and follow it through all its twists and turns. And when that narrative plot line wraps up, well, there'll be another one right around the corner. I wrote about this extensively in an article called The Sides of History that you can find at imyourmoderator.substack.com. But in that I argued that the central narrative is designed to disorient you, not only about the facts of events, but also to disorient you along a timeline. They are constantly rewriting your past. They are lying to you in the present. And at the same time, they are constructing a story about the future so that you will be prepared for the future they intend for you. You won't ask, where is my former life? Where is my former society? Why is nothing like it was before? You'll just know this is where we were headed the whole time. You might be able to hear a story from the mainstream media, part of the central narrative, and go check it out for yourself and realize that various facts are wrong and still not understand the time element. This is yet another reason why it is so important to break yourself out of that central narrative bubble and why everyone should be concerned with media figures who make it their goal to keep you in there. Now, before we get into what I want to talk about today, which is the Lloyd Austin thing and then a little geopolitics, I just cannot resist sharing this clip of Big Mike, Michelle Obama. On a podcast being interviewed by a man named Jay Shetty, who looks like he is wearing adult pajamas. And you might say, well, hey, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he's wearing as he interviews this former first lady. What's important is the substance of what they said. (laughs) Oh, it's so important. But I do bring up his clothes because it's a little ridiculous when you look at what is being projected to us in pop culture and the way men currently dress. And by the way, if you're just having a nice, easy day and you want to wear sweatpants to the grocery store, you go right ahead. I'm not above that myself. Sometimes I hit the grocery store on the way back from the gym and I'm still in the gym clothes. So it really doesn't matter. That's not why I'm bringing it up. But it's also worth noting that it is now considered fashionable to wear essentially children's clothes in adult sizes all the time. The Miami Dolphins have a young head coach. He looks ridiculous every time he goes out on the field. He is dressed always like your typical Middle to upper middle class white millennial male whose interests are the NBA, sneakers, hip hop, and playing Fortnite with his friends. It's also a very strange new trend for guys to wear pants that only go down to their calves, like they're actually wearing children's clothing. It's all very strange. And if you did not notice this before, you probably will now. The weirdest part of it all is that major fashion brands are leading this charge toward just wearing children's clothes all the time as an adult man. And I feel like this happened probably somewhere around 2016 or 2017 when Gucci started dressing all of the pop stars who just happened to rap even though they're only pop stars. Like Migos and some of these other very popular rappers, they're just basically in sync. But doing hip-hop because being in sync is kind of embarrassing now. But here is man-child Jay Shetty engaging in a little girl talk with Michelle Obama. What is the thing that keeps you up at night now? Or what is, is your biggest fear now after having overcome so many?
1: It has less to do with me personally and more to do with the world that we're in. There's such a thing as knowing too much, Mm -hmm, (laughs) and when you've been married to the president of the United States, who knows everything about everything in the world, sometimes you just want to. You know too much, right? It's like (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to know what was in that folder that you just got that made you quiet. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to know why the security just pulled you over. Mm. I mean, it could be any range of things that comes across the desk of the leader of the free world, right? So I know a lot about what's going on and what keeps me up are the things that I know. Mm -hmm. Um, The war in the region, in too many regions. What is AI gonna do for us? The environment, you know, are we moving at all fast enough? What are we doing about education? Mm. Are people gonna vote? And why aren't people voting? are we too stuck to our phones? I mean, those are the things that keep me up because you you don't have control over them. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, where are people, where are we in this? You know, where are our hearts? What's going to happen in this next election? I am terrified about what could possibly happen because our leaders matter. Who we select, who speaks for us, who holds that bully pulpit it affects us in ways that I, sometimes I think people take for granted. You know, the fact that people think that government, eh, you know, it's, it's, it does it really even do anything. And I'm like, oh, my God, does government do everything for us? And we cannot take this democracy for granted. And sometimes I, I worry that we do. Those are the things mm. that keep me up.
0: Fake news, fear porn. It really does matter who we select. And then the claim that government does everything for you. But hey, everybody, you were right. Gosh, I was so crazy calling all of this communism for the last four years. But also, Michelle Obama knows everything and government does everything. Don't worry. You do not get to know everything because you're not the president. You're not that important. So you don't get to know what's going on in the world. Only people like Barack and Michelle Obama get to know and they get to run the government. The government does everything for you and you just have to trust that they are looking out for your best interests. People act like they're hiding this. They're not hiding it. They're saying it right out in the open. Am I parsing their words to make my point? Yes, I am. Am I misrepresenting them? No, I'm not misrepresenting them in any way. They say these things all the time. Then we watch what they do and how they do those things. And all of that just happens to match my interpretation. Now, why is Michelle Obama hitting the podcast circuit? You might wonder. Her book, The light we carry overcoming in uncertain times from late 2022 is stood up on the table between Michelle Obama and the host Jay Shetty. But she's not out supporting the book that was released 15 months ago. She's out there for a reason. It's because it's an election year and the candidate that the Democrat Party is currently planning to run, and we'll see how that turns out, is a decrepit, old, demented, pervert, and racist named Joe Biden, who is quite clearly a fake president, but assuming he was a real president, he would be hands down the worst president of all time by far. And, oh, yeah, he's also the most corrupt president, and he has destroyed the lives of his own children making his entire political mafia crime family a national disgrace. And, oh, yeah, it's worth mentioning that he was mentored by a Klansman and took showers with his young daughter that, in her words, were probably not appropriate. That's the guy that Michelle Obama and everyone else are going to be forced to support throughout this year as more and more of Joe Biden's problems become obvious and widespread public knowledge unless, unless they are able to replace him for some reason. Replacing a president? That's crazy. But is replacing a fake president all that crazy? You might even argue, as I did in the fall of 2020, that being now well over three years ago, Joe Biden was chosen to be a fall guy for this regime. We'll steal you an election, get you in there, get you to implement all of these parts of the global regime's agenda that do eventually represent a complete and total end to human liberty. We'll get you in there to do all that stuff. And then we're going to have like four or five ways to get you out of there. You're too old and demented. Great. All of your corruption comes out. You're just not viable anymore. Great. The people don't like you or your policies, but you already got them done and we'll just convince everyone to hate Donald Trump again, replace you, Joe Biden, and we'll just keep this whole Democrat thing moving forward. Great. All of these were acceptable options for the people on the uniparty left. The American representation of the global regime America's evil twin faction. They were just fine with that. Let's put Joe Biden in. And when the people turn against him, when they realize that he's incompetent or a racist or demented or a pervert or the most corrupt president in American history, we'll simply replace him, thus giving the people what they want, and then we'll just continue the hate campaign directed at Donald Trump and MAGA, and people will buy that and then vote for our Joe Biden replacement. Now, that strategy, as evil and deceitful as it is, is still a very rational and intelligent strategy to pursue if you are the uniparty and you need to simultaneously Push the global regime agenda forward as fast as possible in clear opposition to the stated desires of the American people on whose behalf you are supposed to be working, while at the same time making sure that they do not take it out on you by turning back to Donald Trump. They can replace Joe Biden and all of Joe Biden's problems go away with him. In a few months, he is totally forgotten about. And they anticipate that any Democrat replacement would still be preferable for the nation to Donald Trump, or at least they could spin a story to that effect that people would believe allowing them once again to substantiate a stolen election. So that's what Michelle Obama is there for. And she's talking about politics and she's speaking to people's concerns while also being confident about the strength of people on her side and their ability ultimately to succeed despite the violent and hateful opposition they face. She is out there telling this story. She is out there to create latent demand for her presidency. She is out there to say to all of these Democrat voters, you have to support Joe Biden right now. But we all know We all know, don't worry, it's secret for now. Don't tell anybody else, but we all know we are going to replace Joe Biden. Here is what you really want. And then the people will actually support replacing Joe Biden as well. They don't want to say bad things about Joe Biden or his policies. They can't have the entire nation know that it's not just Joe Biden that the people can't stand. So they're going to keep that part quiet. And then at some point, while people are distracted with something irrelevant, they'll simply replace Joe Biden and then produce polling that says, yeah, that was exactly what the country wanted. Look at the polls, Michelle Obama and Gavin Newsom. That's the team that can take down Donald Trump. And then it will just be 2008 all over again. Hope and change. Versus that evil orange man who they've been consistently identifying as Hitler, now the timing is even more interesting because yesterday this article was published at the f p dot com that's the free press barry weiss's quote unquote independent news outlet. The headline Biden makes it all about Trump. Will that be enough so this is one of those columns that addresses a few different subjects. It has like three articles in one. So we're going to jump down to the second. Could he really drop out? Just last week, Republican pollster Frank Luntz told Barry and me on Honestly, that's what their podcast is called, that it's still possible Biden could drop out of the race. Barry Weiss and this guy host a podcast called Honestly. We are genuinely in Orwell's 1984 at this point. Luntz responded to the question about Biden dropping out. There has to be a chance in the end, if he loses to Donald Trump, that this will be his legacy for the rest of time. I don't believe he will want to be known as that individual. So Frank Luntz's argument is that Joe Biden will drop out to preserve his legacy rather than lose to Donald Trump think about how crazy that is. Joe Biden has done such an awful job as fake president that he would lose to the guy who supposedly everyone hates. And so in order to preserve his legacy, he's going to drop out and be known as the guy who didn't run for a second term because if he did, he would have lost to Donald Trump, who everyone hates. Oh yeah, Frank, that's way better. Democratic elites are worried about whether Biden is up to the job and increasingly saying the quiet part out loud. On Saturday, The Washington Post reported that Barack Obama grew animated in a conversation with Biden when voicing concerns about the reelection campaign during a recent visit to the White House. And that story has gone all over the place. The Obama people are worried that Joe just doesn't have what it takes. One person saying lots of what other Democrats are thinking is Dean Phillips. He's the moderate congressman running against Biden in the primary who hopes an embarrassing showing for the president in New Hampshire would force more in the party to consider dumping Biden. Dean Phillips is also out there publicizing the fact that the DNC is basically doing away with its primaries and just giving them to Joe Biden. They're not letting anyone else even participate in certain primaries. That is, by the way, what the RNC would have done had Donald Trump not already commandeered the Republican Party. Now they can't get away with that. The RNC cannot put a candidate forward and say it's not Donald Trump and still be taken seriously. The MAGA base would be gone from the Republican Party immediately. There is no way Anyone is going out there and voting for a Republican candidate not named Donald Trump in 2024. And just for the record, we can hope we don't get there. But if the RNC chooses to go with someone other than Donald Trump and it is Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley against Joe Biden, I am not going to be telling people to go out and vote for Ron DeSantis. You gotta know that. I'm gonna be focused on election fraud. And writing in Donald Trump, there is no circumstance where I or anyone I know is going to go out and vote for the Republican candidate if the Republican Party establishment figures out and manufactures some way to take Donald Trump off that ballot. Skipping down to the conclusion here, in any decision about Biden's future, one person will be central, Jill Biden. The only person who could talk him out of it is his wife. As Luntz noted on the podcast, nobody is looking Joe Biden straight in the eye and saying to him, you're going to lose this thing. It doesn't happen in the White House. It doesn't happen in politics. She's the only one who could do this, and clearly she's not doing it. For now, Biden is very much in the race and his campaign is all about Trump. Whether or not that is good politics, it is what motivates the 81-year-old. Biden has said Trump's behavior in office sparked his initial run for president. Then he painted 2020 as a battle for the soul of America, promising to turn the page on the divisiveness of the Trump years. This year, he is gearing up for an even darker version of that pitch. And if he loses in November, that's all he will be remembered as, the man who failed to vanquish Trump. It's funny that Joe Biden's entire reason for being his raison d'etre is to vanquish Donald Trump 4 years after promising to end the divisiveness. Does anyone anywhere think that the divisiveness has been ratcheted down at all over these last 3 years that Joe Biden has been fake president? And that, by the way, was the number 1 rationalization for how Joe Biden could have somehow received 81 million real lawful American votes. And of course, even that didn't make sense because Donald Trump increased his vote total by 20%, which is not what happens when everyone hates you. But to the extent that anybody believed it, they believed it because they wanted to turn the page on Donald Trump and Joe Biden promised to end the divisiveness. So the only rationalization about how Joe Biden could have possibly received 81 million real lawful American votes is a proven failure based on reality. And it is not only a failure so far, it is a failure tied directly to who Joe Biden is and what he's done. It is a failure that has no possibility whatsoever of being redeemed and no rational person, even one who might have voted for Joe Biden, could possibly argue otherwise. It just hasn't worked. Now let's move to the curious case of the disappearing sec def. This is from Politico on Saturday. Pentagon didn't inform Biden White House for days about Austin's hospitalization. The Pentagon did not tell President Joe Biden and other top officials about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization for three days. Three U.S. officials said National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and other White House aides didn't know of Austin's January 1st hospitalization until the Defense Department sent over word on January 4th to other U.S. officials said Sullivan informed Biden shortly after DOD's Thursday notification." The officials said it was highly unlikely that Austin conveyed word to Biden privately before Sullivan's briefing. If Jake didn't know, no way the president knew, one of them said. Who would have told him of Austin's condition if not Jake? And if someone did tell the president, Jake would have been his first call. So, based on a series of anonymous and unnamed quote unquote U.S. officials, the Secretary of Defense did not bother informing the secretary of state or the fake president that he was going to be incapacitated for some time. All officials and other people who spoke for this story were granted anonymity to discuss a sensitive issue. Gosh, how nice of Politico to allow these people to remain totally unnamed while relaying this information. Biden held a cordial conversation with Austin on Saturday night, per one of the U.S. officials. The president has complete trust and confidence in Secretary Austin, the official said. A National Security Council spokesperson echoed that sentiment, noting Biden is, quote, looking forward to Austin getting back to the Pentagon, end quote. Now, I'm not sure who's doing the messaging for the fake president's fake administration, but this is not a great job. If the secretary of defense simply disappears for a time and has no contact with the fake president and no one knows about it for days and the president still has complete trust and confidence in his defense secretary, something is very wrong with that fake president's judgment. But the news of Austin's situation came as a shock to all White House staff as they were unaware the Pentagon boss was dealing with complications following an elective medical procedure, the officials said. National Security Council staffers were surprised it took the Pentagon so long to let them know of Austin's status. The Pentagon didn't make the information public until Friday evening, notifying Congress about 15 minutes before releasing a public statement. This should not have happened this way, said one of the U.S. officials. The NSC and Pentagon declined comment in a Saturday statement. They note Austin said I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. I commit to doing better. But this is important to say this was my medical procedure and I take full responsibility for my decisions about disclosure. Oh, well, hey, all good. Then Politico has a comment. From former Obama Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel and then Senator Tom Cotton, because it's important to hear from regime political figures while they're playing their role of regime military figures. NBC News reports that Austin spent four days in the intensive care unit on Friday evening, as many people were turning toward their weekends DOD spokesperson Major General Pat Ryder announced that Austin had been hospitalized since January 1st. His deputy Kathleen Hicks partially assumed some of his duties from January 2nd until January 5th when he resumed his full duties, according to one senior DOD official. But Austin's hospitalization was a closely guarded secret, kept even from senior Pentagon officials and congressional leaders until just before the public statement, according to nine DOD officials and two congressional aides. We are now up to anywhere between 11 and 16 unnamed sources. Some Pentagon officials only learned of Austin's situation through Ryder's News release. One of the DOD officials said their office was told by Austin's aides that the secretary was working from home for the week. So this is the official story from Politico. Bloomberg picked up on this in an article yesterday. Series of errors left Biden in the dark about Austin for four days. You see, it was just a bunch of mistakes. Humans are prone to making mistakes. We all make them. And because we all make them, once politicians, once anyone in the government admits to a mistake, you have to forgive them. Because we all make mistakes. And sometimes when there's a big mistake, it's because a bunch of people made mistakes. And so you can't hold any of them individually accountable for that big mistake, you know? So let's see how Bloomberg describes this series of errors. You see, usually in a series of errors, one person makes a mistake and that is compounded by another person making a mistake and another person after that and another person after that, all of their mistakes being results of prior mistakes. Let's see if that's what we have. The 70 year old former army general's absence and the failure to tell anyone that he had been hospitalized in intensive care left the White House and Congress stunned and scrambling for answers. Even with Austin's reputation for extreme privacy, the absence represented a grave breach of protocol for notifications in the chain of command. Oh, he has, he has extreme privacy on a normal basis, which means that this isn't that weird. He just doesn't like to tell people things, and so he just didn't. Details have gradually emerged, shedding light on what happened. According to one of the people, Austin, who had undergone an elective procedure in late December, didn't tell his staff they should notify others when he was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center on New Year's Day after experiencing severe pain. So there's an error. He didn't tell his staff that they should notify others. Therefore, why would his staff ever do it without him telling them simple mistake, human mistake for sure? Who would ever know that you should do otherwise? Just a mistake. At the same time, Austin's chief of staff, Kelly Magzimen, was ill with the flu and also failed to notify anyone. One of the people said. Just one of the people. Who? Ah, I was one of the people. So I guess that's error number two. Another person making the same error. The person said that Austin's military aide quickly put Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks in charge of running the Pentagon, although she wasn't informed of the reason for this decision. If the White House Situation Room had called for Austin, they would have been put through to Hicks, the person said, adding that there was no break in the chain of command or national security threat as a result of the failures. Hicks would have simply Picked up right where Austin left off. You don't even need to inform the White House about that. They're just happy to find out whenever the Situation Room calls. No big deal. Joe Biden surely knows everything that's going on. He's got it all under control. Since Friday, Austin has received operational updates and has provided necessary guidance to his team and he has been in contact with senior staff, including Hicks, Ryder said. On Saturday, Austin received an electronic version of the president's daily brief, Ryder said. The Pentagon said Sunday that Austin transferred some operational responsibilities to Hicks as his deputy, which occasionally occurs and is not tied chiefly to health-related matters. A senior U.S. official said there are standing protocols to ensure the White House can reach U.S. government officials, including deputies and other senior department leaders. Biden and Austin didn't speak to each other for two days after the president was informed Thursday about his defense secretary's health issues. But they talked Saturday evening, according to the people familiar with the matter. The president has full confidence in Austin, a U.S. official said separately. And then the article just goes on to repeat more elements of the official story. Now, were you just told about a series of errors that led to this problem? No, because there wasn't one. All they did was restate the problem over and over again to let us know that that same problem happened at every link in the chain. What was the problem? Didn't tell White House or anyone else about hospitalization. And that includes everyone. It is the same single problem just dispersed over a number of people in different places to make it seem as though it's not a big problem, just a bunch of bite-sized problems, and it's not all one person's responsibility. Here is an interesting tidbit from, of all places, Slate.com in an article entitled Why the Secretary of Defense's Mysterious Disappearance Means He Needs to Go. Fred Kaplan writes if Austin were a vital member of Biden's national security team, if he were deeply enmeshed in decision making on the wars in Ukraine or the Middle East, excuses might be made and tolerated. But the fact that Biden learned of Austin's absence only after four days, i.e., the fact that Biden hadn't been in touch with his secretary of defense for four days during a period of round the clock military operations and crisis suggests that Austin is far from essential. This is all the more significant as Biden nominated Austin in large part because the two had a close relationship dating from the time when Austin was the last U.S. commander in Iraq and Biden, as Barack Obama's vice president, was supervising the U.S. withdrawal from that country, (laughs) just like he did from Afghanistan. Am I right? Another major factor, Biden's beloved son, Beau, served on Austin's staff in Iraq. The two, both observant Catholics, sat together at mass every Sunday and kept in touch even after both returned stateside. And you might remember that Biden often pretends Beau died in Iraq or as a result of burn pits in Iraq. But yeah, they totally sound like the best of friends. Jack Posobiec reported yesterday on War Room that Biden and Austin haven't talked or met since like October. So it's not a few days. It's just months of the fake president and his fake secretary of defense not talking throughout this entire Israel thing. What exactly is going on here? You would think that any real president would be talking to his real secretary of defense constantly with all that's happening around the world. I mean, shouldn't they be preparing for that whole China and Taiwan thing? How are we going to defend the sovereign borders of that very democratic nation if we don't have the fake president and fake secretary of defense preparing and getting on the same page? Now, most of you are quite familiar with Kash Patel. He was the chief of staff for the acting secretary of defense, Chris Miller. At the end of Donald Trump's first term, he published an op-ed yesterday in the Gateway Pundit addressing the Austin situation. The headline, here's how secretary of defense Lloyd Austin destroyed the national command authority. There is only one national command authority. The national command authority is the constitutionally mandated, congressionally required DOD directed unbroken chain of command from the president of the United States as our commander in chief to the secretary of defense. Our entire Department of Defense, the brave men and women in uniform, rely on this chain of command every day to execute the no-fail mission of protecting this great nation. There is no greater national security priority than maintaining its authority 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Any SecDef who is absent in his duties and fails to notify the chain of command has committed one of the most egregious acts against the national defense of this nation. SecDef Austin, tragically, did just that. For four entire days, he was in a hospital and never informed the National Command Authority of his incapacitation. No one is saying the SecDef can't be out due to illness or even take a vacation. But there is a reason our command authority must be maintained, because the Department of Defense never takes a knee by intentionally breaking the national command authority and failing to inform the commander in chief. President Biden had no idea his SecDef was even laid up worse. The deputy secretary of defense has since admitted she was not even made aware of her boss's hospitalization until days later. Thus, there can be no claim of lawful delegation putting aside the fact that not all authorities can be lawfully so delegated. The impact. What order does one take from whom, which is valid, and most importantly, how can there be any confidence it derives from a sound national command authority? Without such, there is no chain of command, and our military remains rudderless. Our DOD divides the world into geographic regions we call combatant commands— i.e. Central Command, Indo-Pacific Command, etc. Each is led by a four-star general officer, the highest rank in our current military. These combatant commanders and the soldiers underneath their authority are responsible for executing the national command authority in their region. Just imagine if one of them, or Biden, picked up the phone to call the SECDEF regarding a hostage situation in Africa, a terrorist attack in Afghanistan, or a breakout of war in the Middle East, only to find no one on the receiving end. Where do they get their orders? Who calls the president? And how are troops deployed? As the former chief of staff for the Department of Defense, and before that, the National Security Council representative charged with the responsibility of ensuring this chain of command with the nuclear football, I was responsible for effectuating the mechanics of the National Command Authority. There are dozens of employees in the OSD and the Joint Chiefs office. Yet SecDef Austin's office literally put out a statement blaming his critical abdication of the National Command Authority on the equivalent of failing to carry a hall pass in high school. They said his chief of staff, Kelly Magzaman, was sick and unable to deliver notification to the White House. Complete and total D.C. Swamp Monster hot garbage. She is not the only one on staff, but she will be the scapegoat. Look at it another way. What if during the Trump administration, I allowed the sec def I served or any of them to take four days off and didn't notify anyone at the White House, let alone POTUS. The media, Congress and the American people would all rightly be livid. There can be no distinction here just because Biden is at the helm. What's worse is Biden's response to this situation has been to double down on the political corruption cover-up operation Austin has deployed. This president has emphatically stated that he will not accept the resignation of Austin. He has thus validated the illegal actions of the National Command Authority, rewarded it, and jeopardized the safety of our nation. Perhaps most importantly, the brave men and women in our uniformed services on the front lines of the fight deserve better than political chicanery and cheap parlor tricks. They wear the cloth of our nation in defense of us. No one deserves better than them. I know President Trump delivered every day 100% of the time because I saw him execute the National Command Authority. The nation needs that back more than ever. Austin's resignation is only the first step. How this ever happened is a priority for Congress. The president's ultimate responsibility is the authority surrounding a nuclear strike. Do you feel in good hands with Biden and Austin? When command and control fail, does anything else matter? So Cash is communicating the magnitude of this failure and its importance. He is laying it right at the feet of Lloyd Austin and the fake president, Joe Biden. And he is saying that if you can't accomplish something simultaneously so simple and so important, how can you possibly be trusted to defend the nation? And I think most Americans are coming to the realization that Joe Biden cannot be trusted in any way to defend this nation. At the same time, they are realizing that there are actually threats in the world. This isn't about being the world's police force This isn't about going into the Middle East to fight wars, to get their oil or to make sure that women are allowed to drive. This is the realization that there are actual physical threats to the United States of America. If things are handled poorly, if we have a weak and incompetent and corrupt leader, people are coming to understand all of that. And stories like this reaffirm that notion. And it's important to also look at this in the context of the effort to remove and replace Joe Biden with someone else. You want to slowly chip away at Biden so that any potential Biden voter understands that he had to be removed and replaced. And now we've got someone better in there. They want to be able to do that out of a sense of responsibility and duty. Not because the entire country realizes that everything they've done has been a disaster. They are trying to manage public perception while making it clear a change must be made. So we have the official story presented by the mainstream media. We have Kash Patel giving the principled, proper response to the surface level interpretation of that story from the mainstream. He is absolutely right in what he's saying. It is important to understand the moral of the story. But as we do, we want to go below the surface level interpretation of this story. And it's important to do that when you understand that this is more than just a breakdown in communications for a few days. And it's more than just a breakdown in communication for a few months. By the way, the update today is that. Lloyd Austin's so-called elective surgery was for complications with prostate cancer. You got to love when they update the story and it only makes the prior story more mysterious, not less mysterious. They are actually muddying the waters here. But let's get to the greater concern. And that is what Lloyd Austin and the fake president, Joe Biden, were missing while Austin was missing. This is from CNN on Friday. ISIS claims responsibility for deadliest attack in Iran since 1979 revolution. ISIS has claimed responsibility for the deadly twin blasts near the burial site of slain military commander Qasem Soleimani in southern Iran. At least 84 people were killed and 284 injured in the blasts on Wednesday that would be the third, the state-run news agency IRNA reported in what was the deadliest attack in Iran since its 1979 revolution. ISIS media wing Al-Furqan issued a statement on Thursday, more than 24 hours after the explosions, claiming two suicide bombers who are brothers, had detonated their explosive vests as Shiite mourners gathered for the fourth anniversary of the assassination of Soleimani near his grave in his hometown of Kerman. The statement, titled, And Kill Them Wherever You Find Them, named the two bombers and said they targeted a gathering of polytheists near the grave of their dead leader, Soleimani. ISIS considers the Shia branch of Islam to be heretical and has targeted shrines and religious sites in Iran previously. The group offered no further proof and their account of the blasts differs from that given by Iranian media. The death toll provided by ISIS was also significantly higher than reported by Iranian officials. Iran did not immediately comment on ISIS's claim of responsibility. But Iran's official state news agency, IRNA, as well as its English language state media outlet, Press TV, both reported on the ISIS claim of responsibility. Now, if you are a frequent listener to the show or a longtime listener, you will notice that there are certain hints in there that I think give us some indication about the provenance of these claims. When we have global regime state propaganda media mouthpieces calling other media outlets from around the world state media, we can understand that to mean those media outlets report from a viewpoint that conflicts with the agenda of the global regime. The global regime's propaganda media calls any media viewed as opposition propaganda state media their normal audience or readership of American standard issue villagers know that when media is called state media or propaganda, they are to understand that those media outlets lie. Now, if you are awakened at all and are able to break out of that central narrative understanding, even the slightest bit, you would immediately recognize that when a liar is calling other people liars. It's probably a better idea to think those other people might be the ones telling the truth. Now, we don't know that, but it is a hint as to these affiliations. It's also worth noting that Obama essentially started ISIS, Donald Trump destroyed ISIS, and now somehow ISIS is back. It kind of sounds like ice is back, like vanilla ice. Ice is back with a brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly, flows like a heartbeat daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. I'm not going to do the whole thing. So I did know if it was going to stop. It stopped right there. So ISIS is back. Ice is back. And the hilarious thing, Donald Trump had vanilla ice performing at the New Year's Eve party. I am not actually suggesting there is a rabbit hole there. I just find it hilarious. So ISIS started under Obama, was destroyed under Trump, and is now back under Biden. And not only are they back, they are attacking Iran. So this is bad Middle Easterners attacking other bad Middle Easterners, at least from the viewpoint of a standard issue villager. Now, if you then understand that while Iran was being referred to as bad Middle Easterners, By our regime's state propaganda media, they were also a proxy state for that same regime and aren't any more to the same extent. It's not bad Middle Easterners attacking bad Middle Easterners in the good twin versus evil twin construct. It would be a private army of the evil twin, that being ISIS, attacking a former evil twin proxy state. That no longer is, and all of a sudden, the motivations and how we see this situation change completely. It's also worth noting and understanding that in the last week, Donald Trump has said on multiple occasions that Iran is about a month away from having nuclear weapons. Let's go ahead and finish out this article from CNN.com. It's funny because in these articles, each paragraph is one sentence long, kind of got to wonder what it is about their audience that convinces CNN they need to present things this way. Both media outlets they're talking about referred to the group by its Arabic name, Daesh, with IRNA posting a screenshot of the terror group's claim that has appeared on multiple ISIS forums. Press TV added in their reporting that in a statement posted on its affiliate Telegram channels, The Islamic State had claimed that two of its members had detonated explosive belts. Iran's interior minister said the two blasts happened in short succession, with the second deadlier blast coming as others rushed to help the wounded. Another state media outlet, IRINN, said the first explosion was caused by a bomb placed in a suitcase inside a car and appeared to have been detonated remotely rather than being caused by a suicide bomber. Videos showed large numbers of people running in the area after the explosions, bloodied bodies on the ground, and ambulances driving through the packed crowds. Iran declared Thursday a day of mourning, and President Ibrahim Raisi canceled a scheduled trip to Turkey. Accusations flew in the time between the blasts and ISIS's statement. Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi blamed Israel for the explosions and warned it would pay a heavy price. The Israeli military told CNN it had no comment on the matter. Prior to ISIS's statement, analysts and a U.S. official had speculated that the blast had the hallmarks of a terror attack. It does look like a terrorist attack, the type of thing we've seen ISIS do in the past. And as far as we're aware, that's kind of, I think, our going assumption at the moment, the official said, so you see ISIS terror attack, just like those other ISIS terrorist attacks. It has all the hallmarks of a Russian disinform. I mean, ISIS terrorist attack and sure terrorist organizations, just like cartels are the private armies of the global regime, but we're going to pretend they're not for now. Now keep in mind that Donald Trump was the one who took out Soleimani with a US drone. And this was supposed to be kind of a joint effort between the United States and Israel. But Trump has said back in 2021 and then reiterated too much controversy a couple of months ago that Netanyahu kind of backed out of that whole thing at the last minute. Now we are told in this story that it was initially assumed this was an Israeli strike, but no, 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 no. It was an ISIS terrorist attack, and U.S. officials knew that even before ISIS took responsibility based on all the hallmarks. And this happened while Lloyd Austin was totally out of the loop, incapacitated, and no one knew where he was seems like kind of a bad time for the fake president and the fake secretary of defense not to be in touch. And you might say, how do you know the secretary of defense is fake? Well, to the extent that Biden nominated him, that would do it. And if he happens to be somehow a real secretary of defense based on the Senate's confirmation of him, the illegitimate Senate's confirmation of him, mind you, it would seem more likely that his disappearance is being called a hospitalization, but would really just be him doing his job while Joe Biden goes on pretending to be president. If Pasobic's reporting is correct, then Biden and Austin haven't talked for the duration of the paragliding go-kart event and everything after CNN's article ends with this description of Kassem Suleimani. Soleimani, one of Iran's most powerful men, was killed by a U.S. airstrike ordered by former President Donald Trump at Baghdad International Airport on January 3, 2020. So Iraq, that's Baghdad. Known as Iran's shadow commander, he was head of the Revolutionary Guard's Quds Force, an elite unit that handles Iran's overseas operations and was deemed to be a foreign terrorist organization by the U.S., he masterminded Iranian military operations in Iraq and Syria. CBC.com, that's the Canadian version of the BBC. Canada, of course, is a Commonwealth nation still controlled by the United Kingdom and disseminating their narratives, though we pretend that none of that is true and that Canada actually elects its own leaders, even though the British monarch ultimately has right of refusal on the prime minister of all of the Commonwealth nations. This is from Friday, published by CBC and sourced from Thomson Reuters. ISIS was crushed by a U.S.-led coalition after blasts in Iran. Is it making a comeback? Islamic State, the Sunni Muslim militant group that claimed responsibility for two deadly blasts in predominantly Shia Iran this week, has been operating in the shadows since it was largely crushed by a U.S.-led coalition several years ago. Here are some facts about the movement, which experts say is weakened but not eliminated. And of course, they can't eliminate it completely. They need it for their narrative priorities. Sure, everybody knew that Donald Trump eliminated ISIS during his first term in office, but now that we need somebody to take responsibility for these terrorist attacks, we need to pretend that they were simply weakened. At the height of its powers, Islamic State imposed a reign of terror over millions of people and claimed control over swaths of the combined territories of Iraq and Syria. Its fighters repeatedly defeated both countries' armies and carried out or inspired attacks in dozens of cities around the world. Its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared his cross-border caliphate from the pulpit of Iraq's historic al-Nuri Mosque in 2014 and vowed to rule it. Five years later, he was killed in a raid by U.S. special forces in northwest Syria. That would be under Donald Trump. The caliphate collapsed in Iraq, where it once had a base only a 30-minute drive from Baghdad and in Syria after a sustained military campaign by a U.S.-led coalition. This week's attack in Iran is a sign the group is seeking to rebuild its power and relevance. Ayman Jawad al-Tamimi, a fellow at the Middle East Forum, told Reuters, the group's goals remain ever the same, waging jihad against all the group's enemies in order to establish the territorial caliphate that should eventually rule the whole world." he said. So they came up under Obama. You could say they were created by Obama, this private army of the global regime, which is what these terrorist groups and cartels actually are. They run the drug trafficking. They run the human trafficking. They defend those channels and trade routes and they subjugate local populations, making them complicit in the crimes. We can see that south of our own border. It's no different over there. They came up under Obama. They were destroyed under Trump, but really only weakened. And now they are back in full force, just carrying out terrorist attacks on quote unquote America's enemies. I mean, aren't Iran America's enemies? We're told they're definitely Israel's enemies and Israel is our ally and ISIS is our enemy. Why is ISIS attacking America and Israel's enemies in Iran? Oh, it's because they have different interpretations of the same religion. And we're just going to believe that. Got it. Got it. Cool. You've told us that for 20 years. It must be true. All the experts say it. It must be true. Academics, they agree. It must be true. It's these religious differences that provoke these terrorist attacks. And it's got nothing to do with global regime proxy states and the global regime's agenda. Totally. The article goes on to discuss how ISIS is now making its mark in Africa. And of course, that too is all about religion and has nothing to do with the global regime potentially losing many of its African proxy states as they have over these last few years. Here is regime propagandist Peter Bergen writing for CNN.com. This is Friday, January 5th as well. ISIS attacks spotlight the simmering mess growing in the Middle East. The Biden administration has gone to great lengths to prevent a larger regional war in the Middle East. Does anyone believe that? Does anyone believe that Joe Biden, as the current face of the evil twin faction of the Uniparty in the United States of America, working on behalf of the global regime, has any interest in preventing wars Preposterous. Yet already there is a de facto regional conflict raging with all the possibilities for screw ups and escalatory responses that are inherent in such a conflict like a frog in a slowly boiling pot of water. The region may wake up one day soon and realize it's in the midst of an all out war, even though even though Joe Biden and his uh, uh, I mean, secretary of defense, but they're not Gosh, they're trying to avoid this war, but but not talking at all at the same time. Man, oh man, how is it all happening? The danger of growing conflict is rising and threatens to entangle the United States. There it is. That's partly why U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting the Middle East this week to try and stop the widening hostilities. And the truth is he was just in Saudi Arabia to kiss the rings of Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed al nayyan of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, respectively. Consider just the past few days. On Thursday, a U.S. drone strike killed the leader of an Iranian-based militia in Baghdad, the Iraqi capital. Wait, what? The U.S. military had a drone strike on Thursday? January 4th, while the fake president and the secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, weren't talking. So it's not just that he disappeared during a time of global crisis. He was gone while the U.S. was attacking an Iranian in Iraq. Well, we've got to get the story on that. Let's stay with CNN.com. This is the article that Peter Bergen linked to. And one of the names in the byline is Natasha Bertrand, the intelligence asset who published the story in Politico about the 51 former intelligence officials letting us know that Hunter Biden's laptop had all the hallmarks or earmarks of a Russian disinformation op. This is from Thursday, January 4th. Before we found out about Lloyd Austin's absence, U.S. targeted member of Iranian proxy group in Iraq strike, U.S. official says the U.S. targeted a member of an Iranian proxy group with, quote, U.S. blood on his hands, end quote, in a strike in Iraq. A U.S. official told CNN just some U.S. official That is where we are now. It's not even Department of Defense official, Pentagon official, U.S. Navy official. Nothing like that. Just U.S. official. They might as well stop pretending that any of these stories are sourced at all. The target was a member of Harakat al-Nujaba, the official said, an Iranian proxy operating in Iraq and Syria, and the U.S. had been watching him for some time before the strike. A second U.S. defense official said the United States is continuing to take action to protect our forces in Iraq and Syria by addressing the threats they face. A third defense official confirmed later on Thursday that U.S. forces, quote, took necessary and proportionate action against Mushtaq Jawad Kazim al-Jawari, a.k.a. Abu Taqwa, who was a Harakat al-Nujaba leader. Abu Taqwa was actively involved in planning and carrying out attacks against American personnel. The official said the strike also killed one more member of Harakat al-Nujaba. The strike was taken in self-defense, the official added, saying that no civilians were injured in the attack. So this is not starting a war. This is not even an offensive effort. This is in self-defense. You see, the Iranian was actually using a drone call. It's like a duck call for hunters, except it attracts drones. He summoned this drone with the intent of attacking it. And so the drone killed him in self-defense. Now we're being told that This group was attacking and killing U.S. soldiers, and this was a proportionate response. Of course, in order to believe that, we would have to believe these people's word. And why would any of us do that? So we can leave that aside and let's focus on the important thing here that a U.S. drone strike on a foreigner that we're told is a terrorist in a different foreign country, you know, the sort of thing that world wars are started by, was carried out without the fake president even knowing where Lloyd Austin was. Now that's the story we're told, and that is what the fake administration is admitting to. They didn't know where Lloyd Austin was while this strike was being carried out. There's no way out of that timing for them. I mean, we have to assume all this is true in the first place, which we never should, But in terms of their presentation, there is this obvious glaring hole. There's no way to paper over that hole. The U.S. military is attacking foreigners in other foreign countries with the fake president and secretary of defense not communicating. How did that happen? Kash Patel just went through the chain of command, the national command authority, and it is clear that the president could not communicate with the secretary of defense Did not even know that the Secretary of Defense had disappeared, and his deputy was in the same position. It would seem kind of important to know about these things. The mainstream media goes out there and reports on this drone strike and reports on terrorist strikes. And then after that, we find out that Biden and the SecDef were not even in communication. It's like Joe Biden isn't even president at all. Now, you heard that Lloyd Austin had complications with prostate cancer treatments as a result of prior treatment, and we are told that that prior treatment was from December 22nd. Well, this headline is from December 25th. That's Christmas Day of 2023. This is ABCnews.com. A very confused looking picture of Joe Biden is the featured picture here. Biden orders strikes on an Iranian-aligned group after three U.S. troops wounded in drone attack in Iraq. U.S. President Joe Biden ordered the United States military to carry out retaliatory airstrikes against Iranian-backed militia groups after three U.S. service members were injured in a drone attack in northern Iraq. National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson said one of the U.S. troops suffered critical injuries in the attack that occurred earlier Monday. The Iranian backed militia, Khatib Hezbollah, and affiliated groups under an umbrella of Iranian backed militants claimed credit for the attack that utilized a one way attack drone. Iraqi officials said that U.S. airstrikes targeting militia sites early Tuesday killed one militant and wounded 18. They came at a time of heightened fears of a regional spillover of the Israel-Hamas war. They give more background details, but let's skip down. Biden, who was spending Christmas at the presidential retreat at Camp David, Maryland, was alerted to the attack by White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan shortly after it occurred Monday and ordered the Pentagon and his top national security aides to prepare response options to the attack on an air base used by American troops in Erbil. Sullivan consulted with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Oh, that's good. Jake Sullivan and Lloyd Austin, at least. Oh, they're talking. Biden's deputy national security advisor, John Finer, was with the president at Camp David and convened Top aides to review options, according to a U.S. official who wasn't authorized to comment publicly and requested anonymity. You gotta love these U.S. officials, these military officials, as they are sometimes described. It's impossible to know because they leave out all the details. They are willing to discuss the ins and outs and secrets of military operations only on the condition of anonymity because they would get in trouble. communicating about these issues, doesn't that indicate that they are threatening our national security? When we are told about all of the issues that threaten our national security, which is the reason that they can do everything, by the way, from detaining us to censoring us, to taking away our guns. How come they never focus in on these leaks To people like Natasha Bertrand, it's like the propaganda is more important than whatever threat it might pose to national security. Back to abcnews.com. Within hours, Biden convened his national security team for a call in which Austin and General CQ Brown, chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, briefed Biden on the response options. Biden opted to target three locations used by Kataib Hezbollah, and Affiliated groups, the officials said. So Lloyd Austin, after he was already dealing with these medical issues in late December, was all over it when it came to organizing and orchestrating this strike. Same page as Joe Biden, even though Joe was on vacation at Camp David, he found out about these Americans being attacked and he took decisive action. And he is supposedly at that point in constant communication with Lloyd Austin. There's no way that could be wrong. Although to be fair, Pozo said they barely talk. Maybe this is one of those instances where they are right on the same page. Oh, it's time to attack somebody. We better get on the same page. I know you just had surgery and you're about to disappear, but let's get this whole bombing thing sorted out. I imagine we are only days away from a similar explanation about exactly how things were communicated so they can cover up another glaring hole. But let's go back even a little further. This is November 13th, 2023. U.S. launches third strikes on Iran-linked groups amid attacks on American soldiers. So we're getting a lot of these stories. Each story is the same story. They attacked Iranians in response to attacks on Americans. Here is ABC News American aircraft on Sunday struck a weapons storage facility and a command and control center used by Iran linked militants in Syria in the latest round of retaliatory strikes amid continued attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East, officials said. Within the last two hours, the U.S. has taken precision defensive strikes. Against two sites in Syria, one official told ABC News, of course, very defensive. The operation was in response to what the Pentagon has called ongoing attacks injuring dozens of American troops by proxy fighters supported by Iran since the Israel Hamas war began after Hamas's terror attack last month. Now, let's remember, we were told by Peter Bergen that Joe Biden is going to great lengths to make sure we do not get embroiled in a much larger Middle Eastern conflict that could become a world war. Well, this is a strange way to do it. The U S military said the strikes are part of a larger strategy of deterrence intended to keep other groups from escalating conflict in the region where tensions have been sharply inflamed by the fighting between Israel and Hamas. The president has no higher priority than the safety of us personnel. And he directed today's action to make clear that the United States will defend itself, its personnel and its interests. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a statement on Sunday, the strikes were, quote, intended to disrupt and degrade the freedom of action and capabilities of the groups directly responsible for attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria, Austin added Monday, speaking during a press conference in South Korea with counterpart Shin Wan-sik. And we have said and we will continue to say, that we will take all necessary measures to protect our troops, the safety of our troops and our civilians. It is of utmost importance to the president of the United States and to me, General Michael Carilla, head of U.S. Central Command, also issued a statement calling the strikes a response to, quote, continued provocations by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and their affiliated groups in Iraq and Syria. The United States will continue to defend itself, its personnel and its interests. The statement concluded the strikes were the third round of retaliation. According to the Pentagon, the military said on Wednesday that warplanes struck a weapon storage facility in eastern Syria that was being used by Iran backed militants responsible for the dozens of drone and rocket attacks against American troops in the region over the previous three weeks. We hold Iran accountable for these attacks, not just the militia groups, a senior defense official told reporters at the time, 10 days after Hamas launched its attack on Israel on October 7th, sparking the war. You got to remember all that. That's why it happened. Iran backed militants began what has become a spate of near daily aggression. U.S. officials have said. The Iran-linked attackers, quote, in all cases, were taking shots at what they believed to be very large numbers of U.S. personnel with the intent of killing them. A senior military official said last week, so they were just, it sounds like, randomly shooting into groups of people they believed were U.S. personnel. What? On October 26th, in the first strikes, U.S. fighter jets hit two weapons and ammunition facilities in eastern Syria that officials said were used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups, which if you're listening closely, you would know this article already stated. (laughs) Iran wants to hide its hand and deny its role in these attacks against our forces. We will not let them, Austin said then, If attacks by Iran's proxies against U.S. forces continue, we will not hesitate to take further necessary measures to protect our people. So there have been a so-called spate of attacks, people taking shots at what they believed were large groups of U.S. personnel. And because of that, we have launched a series over the course of months of drone strikes against what we are told are Iranian targets in Iraq, and Syria. This is as Joe Biden does everything he can not to get the U.S. embroiled in a much wider regional conflict. We are told it's proportional. And also, we are told that this is all during a period where the fake president, Joe Biden, barely talks to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and the two most recent stories of attacks occurred After Lloyd Austin had already begun having his medical issues and then one during the period where he was totally incapacitated and out of communication, no one knowing where he was. Now let's shift just a little bit. And to start our shift, let's begin with a flashback. February 17th, 2016 about 11 months before Donald Trump takes office. This is Reuters. Iranian banks reconnected to SWIFT Network after four-year hiatus. Global transaction network SWIFT has reconnected a number of Iranian banks to its system, allowing them to resume cross-border transactions with foreign banks after the lifting of sanctions on Tehran, a SWIFT official said. Iran's reentry onto the swift system four years after the banks were cut off from the network had become a political issue in the Islamic Republic in recent weeks. Some conservative parliamentary critics of President Hassan Rouhani had complained the reconnection was not occurring fast enough and the country's nuclear deal was not delivering the expected economic benefits. Iran is desperately trying to boost oil exports to regain market share lost during years of sanctions, which artificially curtailed its output. Despite the removal of the sanctions last month, only three cargoes with Iranian crude have sailed to Europe so far, a fraction of what Tehran has promised to ship to its old customers. Traders have said a slow pickup in exports was partially due to swift problems. Nobody could pay the Iranians via normal lines, not even in euros, one veteran oil trader based in Europe said, adding that after the reconnection, he expected normal banking business to resume. It's confusing why they wouldn't name this veteran oil trader. Iranian banks were disconnected from Belgium-based SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide Interbank financial telecommunication in March 2012 as international sanctions tightened against Tehran over its disputed nuclear program. The system is used to transmit payments and letters of credit, and Iran's exclusion damaged its ability to conduct foreign trade and money transfers. Under a nuclear deal reached between Tehran and world powers, most sanctions against the country were removed last month. Skipping down. Although Swift's action will make it easier to move money in and out of Iran, many foreign banks are expected to remain wary of doing business with the country, at least initially. The nuclear deal says non-U.S. banks may resume trading with Iran, but because Washington retained sanctions against Iran that predate the nuclear crisis and were imposed over other issues such as human rights, Bankers are uncertain of the legal basis for business and worry they could still be targeted by U.S. officials. U.S. banks remain prohibited from doing business with Iran directly or indirectly. Let's move a bit forward on our timeline, though still a flashback. This is from March 1st, 2022 in the Financial Times. Iran's experience signals banning SWIFT will not work as expected. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a curious narrative has taken hold. Banning Russian banks from the SWIFT messaging system, a measure announced over this weekend, will somehow freeze the country out of the global financial system. The experience of financial sanctions on Iran suggests otherwise. The article describes some of the reasons why it is possible to work around the SWIFT system. We're going to pick up part of the way down. Rerouting through these alternative systems is simply plug and play, provided you have a member bank willing to plug you in. MasterCard and Visa systems could also be used for payment transfers. At a pinch, they might even use WhatsApp if they are confident in its security from hacking. Iran's experience shows that asset freezes, transaction prohibitions, and fines on any institution helping with evasion of financial sanctions are far more effective than banning a nation from swift indeed the restrictions on transactions made by the central bank of russia announced this weekend are an important start fines imposed by u.s authorities between 2004 and 2019 for sanctions violations mostly involving iran altogether cost western banks almost 12 billion dollars The inefficacy of a swift ban is further illustrated by the fact that when after signing the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement, Iran's banks were readmitted to the messaging network, they were still unable to conduct transactions with any major foreign financial institutions due to other sanctions. There was another curious feature to the focus on banning Russia from swift. Berlin, in particular, was initially reluctant to go along with the plan, fearing that doing so would make it impossible to pay for the Russian energy upon which it heavily relies. This is especially strange since energy companies have excellent workarounds already in place. For instance, Germany could simply pay one of Gazprom's 10 active subsidiaries, according to LEI Search in Europe, instead of the Russian company itself, avoiding the ban in the process. Money is as money does. As long as it is not actually illegal, banks around the world have strong financial incentives to help clients get around sanctions. Effective financial sanctions need a legal framework with associated penalties in order to ensure that the compliance departments of banks block opportunities for making money from payments to sanctioned elites. As was the case for Iran, this is the best course of action to take if the West is serious about cutting Russian money out of global finance. So they were making the case at this point in the Financial Times that the sanctions against Russia, removing them from SWIFT, would not be enough. They would have to go much further with the way they did in Iran. Otherwise, they would be running the risk of too many workarounds, obviating the need for SWIFT in the first place. So let's jump back to the present. This is from today by Vinod Souza at Watcher.Guru. Bricks. Russia and Iran and SWIFT start bank transfers in local currency. BRICS members Russia and Iran have officially abandoned the SWIFT payment system for cross-border transactions. The two countries will initiate payments to settle international trade using direct bank transfers. SWIFT payment system is no longer needed. For trade between Russia and Iran, as both countries have agreed to carry out transactions directly through the banks, the two BRICS members will engage in direct bank transfers in their respective local currency and not the U.S. dollar. The direct bank transfers with no swift are between Russia and Iran only and not the other BRICS members. Both Russia and Iran were banned from SWIFT in 2022 after the U.S. pressed sanctions against the two countries. However, both countries were allowed to partake in SWIFT for a few transactions, but have now decided to abandon it. The central banks of both the BRICS countries, Iran and Russia, are now working towards smoothing the direct bank transfers. The two BRICS members are now bypassing the U.S. sanctions by completely sidelining SWIFT, and engaging in direct bank transfers. Mohsen Karimi, deputy head for Central Bank of Iran and International Affairs, confirmed that the country no longer requires SWIFT. We have connected the transmission systems of messages of the two countries to each other. That means that the banks of the two countries no longer need Switzerland to communicate with each other and commercial banks of both countries can establish intermediary relations with each other. The exporter can issue an invoice in rials to the Russian side and receive money from Russian banks in Iran, said Karimi to FAR's news agency. So Russia and Iran, and one would assume other BRICS countries when necessary, have gone around swift and now have figured out a way to just simply Go around U.S. sanctions. This is the multipolar world emerging and the force of the United States and the U.N. These international bodies is diminishing. They just don't care anymore. Consider what it means that Russia and Iran are just bypassing the U.S. dollar and any U.S. sanctions, any U.S. influence at all. Now, Iran will be able to produce oil and sell it to whatever countries they end up doing business with. And the U.S., by and large, is unable to exert any malign influence on that process. The global regime controlled other countries by manipulating via the U.S. dollar, the global regime's fiat currency in its current brand, access to financial markets and global trade. Now they don't have that control anymore. That is a major step in the process of removing the global regime from one of its former proxy states. And so all of the attacks really begin to make sense quite quickly. And at some point, you might begin to wonder if that whole October 7th paragliding go-kart thing that was carried out by Hamas but blamed on Iran has something to do with this and not something to do with differing interpretations of Islam or random attacks on groups thought to represent U.S. personnel. Now, if we had a legitimate president in Joe Biden and his appointed secretary of defense, one would be expecting that they would be communicating constantly Throughout this time, this is a volatile region in upheaval. But that's not what we have. We have a fake president who has no idea where the Secretary of Defense is. And at some point, you got to start wondering if that's because he's a fake president. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and joe biden will never be president in my mind that's the end game if you're listening to this episode for free you can support me and support the show and the work i do by signing up for a paid subscription at i'myourmoderator.substack.com you can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon. Out on the range.